Today we start a, a new series, and this is called Reframing Church, and um, it is, uh, use the word series, be, reframing, because I think a lot of times we have this conception of church, can you go ahead and put that first slide on? Um, we have this conception of a church that is uh, a, a negative view of church. And um, so it, it needs some reframing. I, in the words of Inigo Montoya, uh, next slide here, here, words of Inigo Montoya. Yeah, I, that, that was a lot of buildup for really very little, very little. <laughs> Pretty little bang for the buck. I might take that out for the next one. In my mind, I was just gonna, I was gonna produce this massive wave of just laughter, and <laughs> it really didn't. But thank you for you three that did laugh at that, who have actually seen the Prince's Bride. Um, I want to take these next three weeks to talk about church, and I, I think there is a, a, a lot of uh, reframing that needs to be done. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but um, if you have grown up in church, then you have grown up with a sense of what church is. And if you have, if this is your first time to to walk into a gathering that calls itself church, you still have some um, preconceived notions about what church is, what church is in our society, what church has been in your own experience, and some of that for you has been really, really positive, and the reason that you are here is that you are just keeping that going, and for some of you, that has been really negative, that you have had hard experience with the church and with church people, and if you, uh, every week in the news, there is more uh, seeming reason for cynicism and just for heartbreak about the church. And so really feel like this is a, a good time for us to be thinking about reframing church. I'm going to talk about this in three ways these next three weeks. Today is this is church. Next week is you are church. And the third week is be the church. Um, I'd like for you to, uh, you, you've already met each other, remember that conversation, and so would you take a couple of minutes just to kind of explore together with your old friend or your new one, uh, what comes to mind when you think of church? What, what is church, okay? We're not going for right answers here, just the conversation. So take a couple of minutes with that question, what, what is church, Okay. Is that a hard question to answer? By your conversation, I would say not, but what are some things that you said? Let's, let's kind of collect those together just for a second. What is church? You can, you can say what the other person said so that if they're wrong, we can just blame them, right? Because that's what we're all about, right? What is church? Yes. Okay, wherever the body of Christ is. Okay, so place, but people. Good, good. 
What else? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I, brick and mortar is kind of where we, when we talk about that, you know, it's like, I'll, hey, I'll see you at church, right? I'll see you at you. That sounds weird, right? Yeah, that's really kind of where we're going the next three weeks is to reframe some of that. What else? Somebody in this section. Yeah. Community. Awesome. Good. Somebody over here? Bride of Christ. Awesome. Yeah. Place of worship and learning. Those are, those are great answers. It's good. Yeah, church coming together in you know, and, and even this isn't uh, just a, this isn't a, a rebuke of us right off the bat because it's like, don't check out on me. Just an observation that, um, that even in that conversation, there were some folks that were left out of that conversation. You know, there were some, some folks that, that didn't get engaged in that conversation. And so, so we, we, we've got a long way to go in thinking about church. We're going to use the book of Ephesians these next three weeks, and I want to throw up some, that's, that's a, I want to throw up some words, um, not throw up, because that would be gross, some words about church that come out of Ephesians. And I kind of broke them into to three parts, because this is this represents where we're going for these next three weeks. And so the, the church is a house, but it's also a body, but it's also an outpost of the kingdom. Those are the three weeks. The church is called to be holy. The church is called to be unified. And the church is called to be missional. The church is called out. We'll talk about that today. The church is built together next week. And the church is sent out. The, we are to be a people of, of communion, of community, and of commission. Here's another way to look at it. <clears throat> These are three Greek words. Um, ekklesia, which is the called out ones. Uh, koinonia, which is the fellowship of believers, the togetherness. And then uh, diakonia, which is like the, uh, the, the mission, the, the serving. That's where we get like deacons, right? It's the, it's the mission of the church. Here's another way to look at it. Um, we are to be a people of communion, called out to be the holy house of God. We are to be a people of community, built together to be a unified body of Christ. And we are to be a people of commission, sent out to be a missional outpost of the spirit and kingdom. So today I want to focus on that first one. A people of communion called out to be the holy house of God. So we're in the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians was written around A.D. 62, and it was written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. He was writing from prison. And um, what was going on in Ephesus was just all sorts of uh, crazy stuff. Um, it was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, a huge, huge city, 300,000-plus people. It was a, a center of commerce, it was uh, also a center of, of um, cultish worship. It, it housed, um, can you put up that third slide? 
Um, there's, there's Ephesus. The third one, this was actually the next one, is um, the Temple of Diana. And that was one of the, the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. And so uh, people would come to worship, and how they worshiped was um, basically um, paying for a prostitute. And so all sorts of really dark, perverted sexual sin, all sorts of greed and self-sufficiency. And just Ephesus was this magnificent city, incredibly dark city. And so into that city, uh, Paul came and he planted a church, and then he's writing that church, and he lays out this uh, amazing letter. If you want on the men's retreat, um, uh, it talks about power out of the book of Ephesians. And we're going to talk about church out of the book of Ephesians for the next three weeks. And so uh, we're going to be in a passage in chapter 2, verse 19, this morning. But that wouldn't be fair just to jump right to Ephesians 2. So let me catch you up with what's going on in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, God's plan for humanity is laid out. So in verse 10, this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. And so we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who, who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. When you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit. He says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. So in then chapter 2, Paul describes this church, this body of Christ. It's made up of people who used to be dead, spiritually speaking. Chapter 2, verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Paul says we're all in that same boat. But God, verse 4, is so rich in mercy that he, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So the church was and is made up of death-to-life people, but it's also made up of a really strange mix of people. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus about the fact that, that even though there were both Jews and Gentiles in the church, and traditionally those two people didn't mix so well, 
And the church that brought together under one roof, both figuratively and literally. Verse 11, chapter 2. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now... You've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. So now, together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. That's God's big plan. Our salvation, our adoption, our reconciliation, our inclusion through the grace and sacrificial love of Christ. That's where we are when we get to verse 19 of chapter 2. Are we caught up? Good? All right. Let me read the whole passage, and then we'll just unpack it in three parts. So now, I love, but now, so now, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're no longer outsiders. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of, his, of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Okay. Verse 19. So now, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and outsiders. You are citizens, along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. We were outsiders. We didn't belong. We were disconnected from God and from the people of God. But then Christ changed all of that. Dave Early wrote, we all have a restless yearning to attach and connect, to love and be loved. At the core of our essence, we, we want to be known. We want to... Uh, we want to belong. We, we want to have a, a purpose with our lives. We want to have meaning. And those are God-given desires. God gave you those desires. Those are good desires. But all around us, we see those desires going off the rails because people are trying to, to meet those things and to resolve those things in ways that are really unhealthy and really uh, destructive. We see it every day. And Honestly, most of us have, in one shape, one, one, one way or another, participated, right? But now, <laughs> we are no longer dead in our sin. We are alive to Christ. And those desires are met in a whole different way. Not through empty pursuits, and not through codependent relationships, and not through striving to pr promote our name and our image all of those things leave us ultimately short. But now God has designed us to know and to belong and to do meaningful work. But he also designed a way for those things to be realized. And the way for those things to be realized is the church. 
the collective of his people. Remember, we've been adopted. We have a new name. We have a new identity. We have a new inheritance. We have a new life. And now Paul says we are, we are fellow citizens. We are part of God's holy people. All, all Jesus followers from every nation and tribe and language and uh, culture throughout all of history. Not just geographically, but historically. We are members of the household of God, the oikos. Galatians 6.12, we have, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those that belong to the oikos, the household of God. We have a common life together through the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. He is the hub. He is the center. We're not outsiders. We belong. Say, I belong. We are members of God's family. So verse 20, so together we are his house. We are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. You are God's house built on the foundation of the gospel, which has Jesus at the corner. You are an integral part of what God is building. So the question, I think, as I was reading through this and studying it, the question is, is, is what am I building? You know, what, how, how am I building? And I thought at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about uh, the wise and the foolish builders, and the, the foolish builder built his house on the what? Sand. Stupid idea. Stupid idea. Wise guy built his house on the rock. So the same question is, what, what are we building on? What is the foundation? And Paul says there's only, well, there are two foundations, which is really the same thing. There's the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which really is the foundation of the gospel, that we, we are building on something that is firm and solid because the gospel is the story of Jesus. And Jesus himself is the cornerstone. The gospel, uh, Paul says, uh, in another passage in 1 Corinthians, there's no other foundation that, that could be laid except the, only, the one that's already been laid, and that's Jesus. We live uh, out in the county, which was, when I, you know, uh, I was talking about like scattered chaos, noise in brain. I got in the car this morning. It takes about 15 to, to 18 minutes to get to campus without traffic in um, and I was just, I was praying through this morning and thinking about where this is all going and got to campus and parked out on Waldron so I could save you a spot in the park and thank you very much. And, and um, got out of the car and realized my computer's still at home. And so I got back in the car. <laughs> so I spent 45 minutes driving back and forth this morning because of my own stupidity. All of that to say that we live outside of town. And just down the road, we, we go on this little journey most every night just to kind of unwind. And there are some really cool trees. And there's a, for, for years, there's been this foundation out in the middle of this kind of lot. And it's just been a foundation with some pipes up, you know. It's like this old guy started a foundation and uh, never built anything. I mean, I'm talking, we've been there for over a decade, right? And then this last year, 
all the construction crews came and they built this amazing, very expensive house on that foundation. But they were restricted by that foundation, you know? They had to build in congruency with that foundation. And, and Paul is saying, if we build on anything else except the foundation of Jesus, that's not going to work. And then he goes one further and says, Jesus is not only the foundation, but he's the cornerstone. So the cornerstone was the stone that, that really laid out the rest of the house, the rest of the building. And if you got that true, then you would have a true building. You know, we talked about the, the plumb line, right? But if that was off, then everything's off. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is true. And the cornerstone, what for cornerstone can mean cornerstone or capstone, which is really cool. Because the capstone is the last stone. Cornerstone's the first stone. Jesus is the first, and he's the last. Cornerstone had an outside corner, but also an inside corner. And the outside corner was the one that was visible and the one that said, yes, this house is true. And the inside corner was a place of intimacy. It's called the shadow. Jesus is all in all. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. He is the capstone. He's the first. He's the last. He is the builder. He is the architect, the author he is the finished carpenter, the perfecter. Romans 11, everything is from him and through him and for him. It's all about Jesus. Say, it's all about Jesus. That's right. I'm just keeping you engaged right there. Because in verse 21, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. In or through him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Uh, Bonhoeffer said, Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. That we are always viewing each other through Jesus. That our community together has Jesus stuck right in the middle of it. And that affects everything. We are being joined together, not in this like loose structure off on our own self-sufficiency and our own kind of happiness and our own catering to whatever is going to make us feel good. We are joined together around the, the true foundation, the cornerstone of Jesus, the real thing. Isn't that cool? Oh, please nod. <laughs> we are a holy temple in the Lord, ecclesia means to call out the church as holy. And holy, unfortunately, has become kind of a, kind of a dirty word, you know? It's become a negative word. It's become a, oh, you're holier than thou, aren't you? You know, it's, it's like, it's, it's synonymous for judgmental or for uh, superior or Ned Flanders for you Simpson fans. The church is holy, it's set apart, it's called out to be the bride of Christ. It doesn't always seem to be the case when we look at the church or when the world looks at the church because there's so much brokenness and there's so much selfishness and greed and destruction 
And uh, we, don't, we don't need to hide that as the church of Christ in the world. We need to own that. I think it's significant that the Bible doesn't hide the brokenness and messiness. It calls it out. It exposes it so that Jesus can cleanse Jesus is the one that makes us holy. So there's a humility attached to the holiness. We are called away from the things that will kill us. Because Jesus gives us life. And so we are set apart as a community who who knows that we are sinners. We own that reality. And instead of, of justifying the sin and trying to achieve our own way out of it, We humbly receive grace and forgiveness and redemption and restoration. That's who we are as the holy people of God. And then we we gather in his name, in his authority, in his work, in his righteousness, in his holiness, claiming that, yeah, we have been made unholy and unrighteous because of our sin, but he makes us holy and he makes us righteous through his blood. And so now we do have that whole new identity, but we have a, a, a new sense of belonging and also a new purpose. So the one who makes us holy and righteous and pure, the only proper response to him is a life that is aligned to that reality, to what is true. John Merritt says, I'm in repair. I'm not together, but I'm getting there. You know. But up to this point, that, that's still in his own effort. And Jesus says, that doesn't work. We are in repair in and through the grace and the work of Jesus. He is the one who is holy that is making us holy. We are becoming, it says. And that word means growing, increasing, which is a bit of, Paul does this a lot, mixing metaphors. And I don't think he just is like, you know, ADD. I think he's doing that on purpose because it's a fuller picture. He says, you are a growing building. You are increasing. You are expanding. You are growing means that you are living. You are a living house, Paul says. Join together. This is an ongoing building project with the goal of, of corporate holiness and corporal, corporate completeness and maturity. But here's the cool thing about God. He doesn't wait to move in. Um, uh, the guy that did the floors at Gray House um, is this incredible, incredible art, art, artist and um, craftsman. His name is Mitch. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've seen the floors at Gray House, but he, they're like hand done. So much so that he took, to fill the holes, um, he actually mixed espresso beans with the epoxy so that there's actual coffee in the floor. How cool is that? 
he was in Gray House the other day, and I said, Mitch, what are you working on now? He said, I've had this ongoing project for the last four or five years. There's a Victorian house south of town, and there's a, it's been in this family for five generations, and the present owner is, is uh, an artist who evidently has lots of money, and so she's just redoing everything custom. And so he's had this project for four or five years because she keeps changing her mind. He said, what's made it more, a little more complicated is that she just moved in to the house. And so now this remodeling project is going on while she's living in that space. And if you've ever done that, if your family's ever done that, that is really difficult. We remodeled, we bought this old 75-year-old house when we first got married, and uh, we remodeled it. And for over like a month and a half, um, our our downstairs toilet was on the porch, which is really classy. <laughs> and our refrigerator was in the living room, and we did our dishes up in the bathtub upstairs. That was not fun at all, especially with little kids. Here's the cool thing about God. He doesn't wait for the remodeling project to get done before he moves in. And the truth is, that he is the craftsman. The only way the remodeling project of our lives independently and our lives collectively as the church, the only way that that gets done is if he is indeed in the house. Because he's the one that is doing the remodeling. He's doing the restoring. He's doing the craftsmanship. He is the author and the perfecter. It all revolves around Jesus Holiness only comes in proximity to the one who is holy. And again, this last verse, verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. They were without hope, separated from God, outsiders without any hope of a future, and now they're being built together into a dwelling place for God himself. They are being built together to be God's house. How cool is that? For three or four years, I, I kept taking some students to, um, to Worcester, UK, England, which is in the Midlands, and uh, this is a picture of the cathedral, not that, this one. Beautiful, majestic cathedral. It took over 300 years to build. And, and the weightiness of that kind of sat in one time when I was in there, is that there are people that worked on this cathedral their whole life, and it was only partially uh, better than when they started. <laughs> you know? 300 years, think about how many generations of, of woodworkers and of masons and of craftsmen and of collective people of the church it took to complete that project. And in a, in a spiritual sense, we are doing the same thing. We are joining a work that is already in progress. One that Jesus started a couple of thousand, a thousand years ago. 
we are the dwelling place of God. In the Old Testament, there was a literal temple, and it was a phenomenal building. It wasn't very big. It wasn't much bigger than this space, but in today's dollars, it would be about $4 billion, okay? That's a building campaign, $4 billion. But now God resides. He dwells in the hearts of believers. Instead of, of lavishing, you know, with gold and tapestries, he lavishes his church, his building with his love and his joy and his peace. Christ is the one that puts all of the individual stones together. We'll talk about that next week. And he creates a temple, a church, and the temple is holy. It's set apart for God. It's a place where God is, is worshipped. And it's mobile. Because you don't just worship in this space. Your life is worship. And the other thing about this holy dwelling place that God is building is that it's both now and later. The dwelling place of God is the present church and it is the future heaven. Back in chapter 2, together with Christ, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We are a people belonging to God, First Peter says. A fellowship of the Spirit, shared life, a household, a living house, a living organism meant to proclaim and embody and demonstrate the holiness and the righteousness and the grace of Jesus. That comes through abiding in Christ. This is church. This is the dwelling place of God, not in a funny mushroom building and not with pictures on the wall or a band up front. But you, this is church. You are the dwelling place of God. And you collectively, as we gather around the person and the power of Jesus, he is the foundation and he is the cornerstone and he is the architect and he is the builder and he is the finished carpenter. He also moves in. He's here. And what he wants to do in and through us collectively and in and through you is our purpose and our mission and uh, our, really the source of our community. True community is only found in the presence and in communion with Christ. We both receive and become the source of that for others. Seeking community for community's sake will always leave us empty. Seeking Jesus will lead and include and invite true community.